Welcome to Digibarn Radio, fascinating stories from the history of computing. I'm Tommy Cuellar. Our next piece is entitled Mark Goldstein's Story, 1970s through 2000s. This interview was conducted and recorded by Digibarn curator Bruce Damer on January 27th, 2006. Let's listen. So you are Mark? Mark Goldstein. Goldstein. Of Phoenix. And we're looking at the history of everything from the mid-70s. Life, the universe, and everything. everything. <laughs> Which, of course, the answer is 42, and then you're done. And then you're done. <laughs> But yeah, I was an early employee of MicroAge, um, also known as the Phoenix Group, who was an initial mover in the distribution of personal computer products. Mm-hmm. Alan Howd, a kind of a futurist and visionary, and Jeff McKeever, who actually came out of banking IT, mm-hmm. formed the company in probably 74, and I became acquainted with them. and. And Alan really liked the work I was doing in music, analog music synthesizers and holography, and we became friends. And as MicroH began to grow, they opened first a byte shop, a second and a third byte shop, and, right, then, right. and then more of a uh, distribution channel and warehousing. And I was about their 25th employee of a company that eventually became a Fortune 500 so, company. So here we see the, the byte shop in, in Tempe. Right. And uh, right. there was one, they were in Mountain View. and Well, they didn't own all of those. They they did uh, some of the franchising of them. Okay. They, they eventually owned six themselves, mostly in Texas and Arizona. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they didn't own them all. They were a franchiser. You can scan in this stuff if you... Oh, we probably won't have too much time. much time. But or I can, I can later. Um, so... Uh, I worked, uh, as the company grew a little, in an R&D group under a VP, and mostly what I did was evaluate products we might carry, early printers and computer systems. Sorok terminals we used lots of. That was their favorite terminal, (laughs) Sorok IQ-120s. And everything was mostly S100. So here we, uh, here we had a North Star horizon right. there in the wooden They were big case. on North Stars, and for a while, the processor technology solves. Um, and others, that I've mentioned that funny little five-slot chassis, Microsystems. I can't quite remember that okay. company's name. Well, there was Industrial Microsystems. Yeah. And then there was, they didn't carry those, and then... Of course, there was MSI. Right, and later Cremenco. Later they Cremenco. were on the scene at the very beginning. Um, and so mostly I, I evaluated products for us to carry them. I wrote drivers or interfaced them to systems so mm-hmm. that they could be used by people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had that one project, which, again, Alan was a futurist active in the World Future Society so nationally. So that what was that project? Um, well, it was alternately called Albert the Office and Fred the House. Mm-hmm. So they were meant to be intelligent environments. You'd get up in the ah, morning, be okay. in your house, okay. do your house automated things, and then go to work. But the those two computers would be in contact with each other. So the, just pick up where it left off? Or? Yeah. So the third wave. Uh, Alan Toffler's book from, we believe, 79. Yeah. Uh, Alan Held knew Toffler through the World Future Society. And Toffler interviewed him and reported specifically on the project. 
and it was all done on an Apple II. I think you could only have 48K of memory, mm -hmm. but all seven slots were full. There was uh, probably some expanded memory, uh, voice recognition, Mountain Hardware had some cards, voice okay. synthesis, uh, AC remote control, uh, uh, through a, an X10 interface system. Right, um, right. And I probably have the documentation on exactly what it consisted of. But everything had to be coded in basic and assembly language, and it all fit in 48K. What was it controlling? So it was controlling uh, lights, printers, thermostats. It was turning on wow. and off. And, sort of the house, and the house automation. Microchip house of the future. Mm -hmm. And so it really did do, to the extent that voice recognition worked then or even works now, it would load up various vocabularies of speaking or uh, recognition mm -hmm. templates, depending, because you couldn't hold lots of stuff in your 48K, it would overlay different control groups of, of speaking patterns. I, or, I recall around 78 watching a TV program uh -huh. about a project somewhere in the Rockies about a microchip house of the future, uh, which had like these smoky dark glass panels people would talk to and lights would go on and off. Right. Was it, was it, right. Do you think this was, was it, maybe that was a concept only? or uh, it, Well, this never, this was in my boss's house, but it was never, it was mostly a more of a trade show demonstration. Uh, okay. And they would give us our own booth for that. MicroAge would rent a booth, but this project, you know, there's photos in here, okay. they'd give us a fairly large space where we'd get local furniture and, and set mm -hmm. up a mm -hmm. kind of part of the display booth would be uh, the office part and the other part would be the home part and they would be doing their interactions. And so, as I started to say before, the other not even quite similar thing was at a lot of these shows there would be people with little R2-D2 kind of robots, mm -hmm. but they'd really be remote controlling them and talking through them and it was more of a clown thing yeah, than it was yeah. a real technology thing because there wasn't so this is Albert the office Albert the office and Fred the house here's Alan Howard or I would hold hourly or two hourly oh, it was you know. quite a crowd there yep and yeah. this may have been Philadelphia or Boston or Atlanta who did more East Coast things there's a television interview um, yeah this is a big trade show somewhere it's like, this wasn't like PC, you know how they have PC-76. It wasn't the fairs, no, it wasn't, it wasn't the, the West Coast fairs. It wasn't the West Coast computer. Yeah, I've been there once, but not with this. And so here I am doing the demos on TV or to sure. an audience. And there were cameras, It would. It, there were some relay things that could change the views and switch. And so I had rigged up all this software and mm -hmm. hardware as my job, and so that was fun. The TV and the desk there. Right, and then we were showcasing a $13,000 desk. It wasn't ours, but my grades could be like a Neiman Marcus catalog. We right. could get it for you. Right. Uh, and so there was, you know, it was all burl walnut and kind of fancy, uh, but everything was run off the Apple. Though this guy could not, would not limit, I let the interviewers, and there were several TV interviews in different cities, you know, interact with it, not train mm -hmm. it for their voice. But he insisted on, like, talking in a vernacular, you know, expecting natural language processing. Right. And just, in the end, I spent four hours um, reprogramming so I could jerry-rig what actually worked to something that I could uh, hokey up 
so that it actually worked the way he wanted to use it. And so it really bugged me because it really worked, and all of a sudden I was doing it but sure, for, him, for him, like the clown computer robots that were running right, around. Right, I understood. So um, here's press release from 79 about the time that uh, Toffler covered it. Um, and so on. But I did a lot of work in just interfacing products. And in, in specific, I mentioned what I thought might be a kind of historical point in time, mm -hmm. which was the introduction of uh, hard drive subsystems. Here, can we get a picture of the uh, Office of the Future? Because just a point before we go in, what's interesting always to me is um, which you know, the letter that there we go. Oh, the press release. Is, What's fascinating to me is that the, at the same time as you had all this activity in the S100 and the, the sort of public space right. for Office of the Future, you had Xerox with its altos and its raster screens and right. distributed documents and whatnot, which, which really was the Office of the Future, but there was such a disconnect between those two worlds. And and this world, the world of the S100 and what I grew up to become that, at, at some point they of course borrowed and took all the Xerox right. stuff and put it on its, on itself. But right. this is the world that, in, that inherited it. Inherited, absolutely. So it's it's just a fascinating. So so part of that was of course the coming of hard drives. So the, right, and and we carried the Alpha Microsystems that had, you know, small and medium enterprise level applications and mm -hmm. accounting, a lot more solid stuff that you could get under some other environments because it was stuff that kind of was downgraded or transferred over from mini computers, yeah. from Data General Novas and uh, DEC uh, minis came to the Alpha Micro. Yeah. And so we did introduce, uh, you could buy a hard drive subsystem and for the S100 for $9,995, <laughs> which was a you know, a threshold-breaking price point to right. probably 78 I would say. And so for that $10,000, you got a Conan disk controller, K-O-N-A-N, and they were a Phoenix-based company. I met with them many times mm -hmm. when I was working on the driver. And either a CDC Hawk, we called them, mm -hmm. uh, which had 5 meg fixed and 5 meg on a pizza-sized sure. removable platter, so yeah. you could do your backups, or you could get a Fujitsu 40 meg fixed drive, and often you wanted both the CDC Hawk for your operating system and your backup. In 1978, this, this would have been the equivalent of buying like three new automobiles. Right. Type of thing. But it was just you picked up these big things, pizza-sized things with a handle on top, and that whole thing was five megabytes, right? Enough mm -hmm. for one music file or Today. a couple of the photos that were taken <laughs> right, today. Right. And yeah, so right. um, I had to write the drivers and the hardware uh, documentation and the user documentation. But here's the ad from August of 79 where we uh, it, it was in some of the major magazines, uh, Interface Age and Byte and other places. Not sure where that so, particular um, So Jer is. Jerry Purnell might have had, had a look at this. And, right. Yeah. Because he was started, well, I don't know when he started there, but. But this was uh, the, the, an example of the uh, print ad. Yeah. Oh, this yeah. is from Byte, August That's 79. 79. Uh, so you'll have the It'll original of the ad. 
Uh, and here's an example of the uh, My Research and Development Tech Notes, how to hook up the CDC uh, drive to an alpha microcomputer, um, you know, giving some hardware stuff, some software configuration stuff. And this was sometimes the kind of stuff I did, um, which was bring uh, uh, computer products together to make mm -hmm. some system yeah. uh, that then made sense to some So you audience. had to write the drivers. You had to write the right. mounting drivers. Right. And do it in the right order and uh -huh. it. mount the table, the fat file allocation table. Exactly. And I had to write the assembly language, which isn't, I don't, it may actually be in some other pages listed here. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe not. There's a press release okay, as we, 160 megabytes. Is there a year on that? A little later, we got up to 160 That's, megabytes. Yeah, so this is, this is kind of amazing because it's, you know, before 1980 to have this kind of, of space. Right, when we got to the 80s of the PC platform, you could get, I think my first personal hard drive was a Tandon 503, like a 5 meg, yeah, five, 5 and a quarter full height drive. Yeah, I've got one in a PC, an original IBM PC. And they were still expensive, a couple yeah. of thousand maybe. You know, maybe they were down to 2,000. I then. remember getting a, an AT compatible and had a 10 meg drive, and that was unbelievable. Uh, Graphics. So these were product evaluations. Should we carry this product? What would the audience be? 3D graphics software. <laughs> yeah, so I evaluated software hardware, helped make the management decisions about what we should carry. Um, it barely worked for a guy, Steve Clark. I thought I actually had the uh, uh, drivers in here. I guess not. Well, here's, here's, a, here's a good ad. Yeah, here's, a, here's our ad for the... Uh, uh, alpha micro system that gave you 16-bit horsepower 16. in an 8-bit okay. S100 world. Right, yeah, because that was definitely, that was the new the new coming wave, 16-bit. And Microsoft, uh, MicroAid, sorry, correctly anticipated a small business market beyond the hobbyist market and, and did things like this geared past the hobbyists. Mm -hmm. So they had a, a realistic vision of the uh, personal computers serving a small business to medium the, business environment. The strange irony is is that um, IMSI about this time was bankrupt and being right. sold off, and yet it was intended to be the small business. Right. And so but they, they really weren't. They, they, it was still obvious that we're yeah. using them. Uh, but we would slap the Alpha Micros in, slap the hard drives. And more often, North Stars for some yeah. Unknown reason we had an affinity for the North Star. And, and um, MSI seemed to use North Star discs. Right. Yeah. Right. So it's. Right. And so I, I had to write the drivers for on the. Uh, uh, oh, and here's your. Oh, and the music synthesizer, whole different world. Yeah, she's got a Rhodes Fender 88 as well, which is given to us by a friend, but she, she sort of grew up with those in the 70s. But to kind of bring us then to this instead, uh, this is, uh, uh, I had a side business uh, before I went to MicroAge called Advanced Tools for the Arts, and I kept it through the early 90s. Mm -hmm. And as we talked last night, I got my degree in filmmaking. I worked with a cream of independent film movement. 
but I also knew Namjoon Pike and worked on experimental video stuff, mm-hmm. and that's really got my interest started. And you were hacking at that point. You were t- taking oscillators and driving the yokes oh, of uh, TV dance system. Yeah, I talked. I talked to Galen about this last yeah, night. So you know her her background and with Myron Kruger and yes, we talked a bit about that. Uh, and so I developed. That's okay. So you developed my own line of music synthesizers from scratch. They were kind of the complexity and style of the Mini Moog or the ARP 2600. Right. But they had a true patch bay uh, where everything routed to one side, and you could use short patch cords in a somewhat coherent user interface. And the other innovation was the first 15 or so connections that you were likely to make mm-hmm. were pre-patched to connectors that then disconnected the pre-patch if you plugged into them. Okay. And so you could actually power up the analog synthesizer with zero patch cords okay. and have it in, an, which was kind of like a mini Moog, but you had the flexibility of an ARP 2600 um, uh, in terms of patching and, and capability. Okay. So it wasn't... It was just another product in that line. But there was a very strong hacking community in electronic music synthesizers in that time. Mm -hmm. There was a guy Mm -hmm. in Ithaca who knew Moog very well. Uh, His name was Bernie Hutchins, though. And I I have those somewhere. You may be interested in those. He had e-music newsletters that... You know, showed he would, he'd develop circuits. Other users would develop analog circuits, and they'd be shared. And it was a whole uh, hacking community, uh, virtual community, mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. electronic music synthesizers in that analog era in the early 70s. And I have all that stuff yet somewhere. That wasn't garage, though. I still have that in filing cabinets. You may be interested, perhaps, in that. Because it was really analog computers, like John Whitney may have used in Mm -hmm. in, in an era earlier. Right? He did a lot of analog computer work. So, anyway, Advanced Tools for the Arts, what you were looking at and photographed was work I did with the dance department of the university. Uh, Arizona State University bought a couple of my analog music synthesizers in the music and dance department. But the dance department, there was a visionary, David Gregory, there, who was a composer in residence in the dance department. So he wasn't a dancer, but he wanted the dancer's motions to affect the synthesizer and thus the music playing. Okay. Okay. And so I did an early analog uh, interpretation devices that would extract artifacts from movement and feed out voltages for the voltage-controlled oscillators and envelope shapers and so on of the synthesizers. But I also built them laser display systems, mm-hmm. light theatrical light board interfaces, and a whole litany of things that fell under this advanced tools for the arts, for the arts. Uh, kind of thing. So it was a way that I brought my technology forward. This is actually talking about the, well, holography demo. Um, and that's another story. Uh, I had a partner, uh, a PhD in, in optics, and he and I built the second holography lab in the country uh, that could do multiplex or composite motion picture holograms. Right. And so right. The, the first was a guy who has some renown for having doing it, Loder Lloyd Cross, at a company called Multiplex in the San Francisco area. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we actually had a much better process. 
I don't know, you, these holograms kind of look like lampshades. They're about 10 or 12 inches high yeah. in a circle. And there's a famous one of his where a girl's blowing a kiss. Yes. Yeah. Everyone probably has seen. But his had to have three splices because they could only make a 120 degree um, span uh, of the 360 degree. That was just my breadboarding or something. Sure. There, you know. Uh, well, my, like, my lab. Yeah, that's, that's a camera there, not a right. laser. But. Right. So Mirage Holographics in Scottsdale was our joint venture in the uh, late 70s. Uh, and we had invented a, a process by which we could make the hologram in a single pass by moving film through with stepping motors through a, um, a big military film back. Mm -hmm. And what you're really doing is taking a movie frame and stretching it out to a very thin spaghetti strand mm -hmm. vertically mm -hmm. and making a hologram of the frame, okay. of one frame. But as you look at the way this is wrapped as a lampshade around a single-point light source, a clear bulb, mm -hmm. uh, each eye is then seeing a different frame of a movie. Yes. So there is a time lag, and if someone moves too fast, there is what we call a time blur, because you see a hand, let's say, in two positions in space. Yeah. But the fact that you either move the camera around the objects and people, or, as we did, put them on a platform and rotate the platform out of view of the frame, mm -hmm. each frame of the image had a different angle on the action. And when you presented it in that way, each eye saw a different view, and thus a true stereoptical effect. So this continued while you were at Microage? Yes. This was a side, I always had side business, side projects. Mm -hmm. So here I am in uh, <laughs> 1977 in our lab in Scottsdale. Now, this took a 4 by 8 Hexel is the company. It's mm -hmm. steel plates on top of a hex uh, a mesh inside and filled with sand. The tabletop weighed eight or nine hundred pounds. And when it was yeah. received, we had to go into a bar nearby and empty the bar by offering a round of drinks to everyone or two to come help us move this table into our little rented office in Scottsdale. Mm -hmm. The table top, four by eight feet, nine hundred pounds, sat on spare like spare tire inner tubes small inner tubes that floated in a bath of oil mm -hmm. those sat on various layers of like plywood and spongy stuff and eventually out to a big steel frame to the ground but we had to do vibration isolation well, this, is this was the control system in digital logic that i created to run the pattern of stepping motors on what you'll probably see a, a view of the optical optical table and some of the optics but we had to run uh shutters and a whole variety of stepping motors and here we are shooting with a 35 millimeter araflex we shot 35 millimeter film stock uh some dancers and as mm -hmm. i told galen i have a i have a lifetime affinity for for dance and dancers um and let's see if there's anything else of yeah there's uh a lens that was very hard to make. We made one first ourselves 
out of plexiglass filled with an optical oil, but we eventually had to have it custom milled and polished, very expensive for us at the time, to get an optically correct lens, yeah. kind of anamorphic that would stretch that 35 millimeter yeah. frame as part of the holography. When I was in graduate school, we had a whole optics lab in our right. group. And, and here's the schematic of how our optics part worked under that control system you, I built. You basically made a home-built optical table that would have cost an immense fortune. Right. Things were really expensive, right. I remember. And this was all done out of personal funds and, yeah. and sweat. Uh, but we did have to spend it's real money on the Hexel table. Here's a circuit board layout for one of the control boards. And I had to invent my own little stepping motor. There weren't nice, nice single chips right. that did it. And so I actually did uh, discover, before I learned it by name, I invented Carnall Logic. Okay. Right? Because I was trying to simplify stepping motor control down to a couple of chips, and the process I eventually got to it by turned out later to have a name that I didn't know at the time. Mm -hmm. Carnall Logic, I think it's called. So, the, interestingly, to create the hologram, we'd advance everything, wait for all the motor vibrations to settle out sure. and so it would take hours and hours to make a hologram Yeah. because uh, we do a frame wait about eight seconds was our cycle time for the next frame and there were hundreds and hundreds of frames to make it up and it turned out there was a not a speed bump but a kind of bump in the road about a hundred yards away and if mm -hmm. a car went over that bump immediately <laughs> before the, the brief the brief exposure to a window in the eight seconds, yeah. it would blur that frame. So we would only run holograms starting about 2 a.m. so that they'd be done before morning rush hour and not too many frames would end up <laughs> blurred. And that's after all those layers of isolation. A hundred yards away, a car going over a bump would blur our frame. So we got some coverage in... Uh, in local uh, press, some good articles that someone else that did still frame holography. Um, and I always have had an interest in three-dimensional representation, which is mm -hmm. why we should probably talk over breakfast a little more about yeah, the commons and such. Yeah, but that's another part of my history, which... I, I, we had a, a, a tour of um, oh, Livermore of the um, National Ignition <laughs> Facility a couple of years ago. Because they borrowed the Create Q2 for an exhibit. Oh, yeah. An, an Edward Teller oh, cool. type exhibit. Right, right, and, right. Uh, so we got to go in the NIF and some of the largest, I guess, the largest laser system right. in the world now. Right, And this was just a helium neon, you know, laser, I, I don't know, how, maybe 20 milliwatt, you know, or something, which was at that time a big laser. Sure. It was like four feet and, you know, eight, eight inches or something mm -hmm. square. And again, cost us real money. And and we we had we actually did do a proposal for a Disney thing through a subcontractor of theirs to and to do a kind of Pirates of the Caribbean you know kind of display mm -hmm. and that one they wanted it life size and so our our proposal you, you could only do one foot high you saw the lens we had to do make to do the one foot high mm -hmm. piece we had to propose making like a diorama that you rolled on the stage, right, where you'd have a slightly curved surface and you'd pull this 100-foot hologram, but there'd be six of them to get to be six feet high. Sure. And so we actually did do a proposal that never 
solidified with Disney through an intermediary to do a amusement park amusement, like a uh, hologram. Yeah. But we always thought that point of sale displays in stores were a great market. We just and embossed holograms, in fact, you know, turned out to be a good and mass producible product. Ours were so labor intensive. We thought we could eventually do contact printing of them, but we never got to contact printing. Everyone was a one-off. So since, since these years, uh, huh? this is up until the early 80s, right. what, what have you been up to? Well, I had an engineering career uh, starting in 1980 uh, after microage. I, I never got had an engineering degree. I had a film degree and experience in experimental video and all this engineering I did in advanced tools for the arts. And at microage, I found I was employable as an engineer. I went to work for Medtronic. Um, a large biomedical device ma manufacturer, the largest in the world for pacemakers and yeah. certain other pro yeah. products. And I ran test engineering for them for 12 years. Okay. And so test engineering consisted of what we used to call rack and stack, IEEE 488 GPIB bus yeah. equipment. And I didn't bring Medtronic stuff. I had another section in my old notebooks of those. Um, but I ran 45 or 50 engineers and technicians who created, maintained, and wrote software for test systems that moved billions of dollars of heart pacemakers a year. And the line ran, the testers were a precious commodity. They ran the testers, and we had to have tech support three shifts a day. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they had in our facility 14 or 15 automatic test equipment stations, uh, but they also had to have them in Minneapolis and Kirkrada, uh, uh, Holland, uh, where we had European final assembly, and in Puerto Rico, where we had U.S. final assembly for tax reasons of various sorts. Um, and so later in my 12 years at Medtronic, I had the opportunity to create a new generation of test systems, and so I did one last great project for them, which I uh, I stayed longer probably at that job than I would have liked, but I felt bound ethically and in other ways, affinity-wise, to finish this great project. And that was a new generation tester. Uh, it was based, to the extent possible, on uh, VXI boards. There was a, and uh, uh, is, a, 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 what is it called, a VXI uh, variant of the, uh, of the bus, which is uh, for engineering instruments on a card. And I worked with the early industry association for the VXI bus, uh, which had people like Hewlett Packard and WaveTech and Tektronics and DeCalrena and some Japanese scope manufacturers and all these people trying to put complex and standalone instrumentation on cards in a VXI bus. Yeah. Yeah. So we built, and I was the primary architect of the hardware for Medtronic and had a third of my team in Minneapolis, which meant I did shuttle to diplomacy, and they had the comparable software architect guru in Minneapolis, but a third of his staff was on my staff in Tempe. Mm -hmm. So I had a very complex, and then there were people from Holland and Puerto Rico on the team, but I had a very complex global project in the tens of millions of dollars 
and I was the primary hardware architect and team leader for that and helped manage the software because a third of the software team were under my direct reports. So that's my Medtronic error. It left in 92. And since then, I I had a decision point in 1992, which is what do I want to do on my own? I had always had advanced tools for the arts, then engineering, engineering consulting, some product design for others. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, I could be a kind of product designer for hire, uh, consultant. I could do that, but I've been doing that a while. I could be a computer network guru and hire myself out to, you know, integrate computer applications for businesses, hearkening back to some of the things I did for MicroAge in the 70s. Mm-hmm. But I thought, well, there's plenty of computer consultants out there now in yeah. 92. I'd just be another one. It doesn't matter that I started in 74, 20 years earlier. Yeah. What's so unique about that? Yeah. So I had done some patent prior artwork and some product strategic work for people just as part of advanced tools for the arts at times and product design. I thought I would do research and consulting, um, and I found a international group, the Association of Independent Information Professionals, AIIP.org, mm-hmm. who is kind of a support group for exactly that, very small businesses who do independent contract research which they called information brokering, which is a term that one needs to be cautious about. That's a good cartoon mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. Uh, drawn to a company uh, and coverage of our project in Newsweek um, in that error. But uh, so AIIP, uh, uh, which I've been on the national board of that group, and in fact I'm going in the late uh, 80s. No, late 90s, sorry, 97 and 99. I'm going back on the board as the national secretary this year for a three-year term. A great support group. So I went out as a researcher and consultant in the technology arena and developed some core expertise in telecommunications, Mm -hmm. uh, served. My business was probably... 70%, 80% 70%, 80% telecom-oriented in the late 90s, early 2000. Of course, by 2001, the entire tech market crashed mm-hmm. badly, and the worst-hit sector of the downturn in technology was, in fact, telecom, because you had all these yeah. companies like Windstar and NART that yeah. were overextended that thought each one of them thought they could own the Metro Wireless or the Metro XYZ marketplace, yeah. and of course, yeah. if you added up all the market share that all of them projected, it was about 1,200% of the market if they all got the market share they were basing their business models yeah, on. Yeah, friend of ours worked so, at Global Crossing. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, big overbuilds in fiber and metro wireless solutions and other things. And so, uh, since then, since 2001, I've diversified more. Telecom's coming back a little. One of my recent projects, though, I'll talk to you maybe off, yeah. off camera at yeah. breakfast, uh, it has been for the Institute for Defense Analysis. And so I've done a lot of work in knowledge management, digital rights management, content aggregation and distribution, mm-hmm. and more recently in knowledge visualization, taxonomy and ontology and things like that. I don't know if you want to yeah, keep we'll, going. Well, um, I think we'll... Stop it or pause it, and uh, thank you very much, Mark. My pleasure. And And I'm so glad maybe we should mention that what I'm I'm here to do is bring you 
20, 21 cartons, full cartons of computer uh, magazines. Magazines, which finally yeah. completes a huge missing part, part of the Digibar right. collection, which is the mag, the, ma the magazines are the most information-rich source. Right. And I, so I started getting everything, everything literally, not all the IEEE computer magazines, but mm -hmm. everything, and I got some of those, but I didn't archive them. But I received and archived everything from about 74 or 75 Mm -hmm. Through the late 80s, 86 to 88, where this volume of several dozen cartons of um, stuff and, and my interest in using them and archiving them kind of diminished, and you're getting the bulk of that collection yeah. from the critical 13-year period. Including uh, the Bytes, which uh, co-founder Alan Lundell, who will be able to see his right. editorship starting in about 1980. Right. There's a complete set of Bytes, except for issue one, which I, I believe you have. already have. Yeah. Uh, somehow, I didn't actually get issue one on the newsstand and picked up on it shortly after. Well, it, it was a radio electronics no, magazine, the, and then it yeah, got April switched. April 75. It got, um, September or, 75 is where it switched okay. to Byte. And in October 75, there's all these right. confused letters to the editor saying, what happened to happened. our perfectly good radio electronics right. magazine? Right. Right. <laughs> what are these computers right. doing in here? Charles, Carl Helmers. What, four or five cartons just of Bytes? Of Bytes. And so there's many, many years span in very good condition, arguably, of Byte magazines for Stored you. Stored in a dry garage in Phoenix, Phoenix Arizona, Arizona. Tempe or Phoenix, yeah. Right. And so, and, and as you've seen from the boxes of S100 and Apple stuff, you know, I've pretty well organized, organized that it. material and, and uh, am glad to have you mine a bit of it. Yeah, so we, we found the Insight bankruptcy documents. Well, the Insight, the bookends of Insight, we found the first product literature and then the bankruptcy documents, which is going right. to go into uh, this year's uh, Little OSs That Could project because Insight was the first OEM of CPM. Right. So that goes into the Gary Kildall story. Right. So it all fits together. <laughs> so thank you very much, Mark. My pleasure. You've been listening to DigiBarn Radio. This story is available for some uses under our Creative Commons license. Please check our website at www.digibarn.com. That's www.digibarn.com for this license and more great stuff from the DigiBarn collections. This is Tommy Cuellar signing off. Thanks for tuning in.